Well, today we are continuing our message series, Living in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to impact every area of our lives. The Spirit wants to lead us into God's blessing. He wants to direct us in God's will. God has a will for your life. He has a will for you and your interaction with your family. He has a, he has a will and a purpose for you on your job. He has a will and purpose for you in your church, in all of your relationships, in your reaching out to others, and in your interaction with our government. Now, I would uh, encourage you to take out the white page in the middle of your bulletin. It has the outline for the message there written out and uh, the verses as well. On the back is a study guide used in a number of the life groups of questions that relate to the outline. You can also use it in your own personal study. Now, one of the tactics of Satan, I mean, none of his tactics are new. They've been used down through the millennia, is to keep, uh, is to get Christians to keep their faith quiet, to not let anybody else know about what you believe, to not let your faith impact your life. Satan doesn't want your faith to influence anybody else. And why not? Because if your faith influences somebody else, they might become believers and he's going to lose uh, somebody for his kingdom. And so he does everything he can to keep Christians quiet. Satan doesn't want your faith to influence how you vote. Why is that? Because a Christian who votes, according to biblical principles, will enhance the testimony and the witness of the church. And so he wants he doesn't want your faith to influence your vote. We're going to look at an example from the Bible of one uh, one instance of Satan's tactics and how believers should respond. It's found in Acts chapter 4. And the context of this verse is that Peter and John had just healed a man. This man had been lame from birth. And so it made a big splash. You know, people say, wow, this is something. This guy's been lame since he was born and he was an adult and he was healed by the power of God. And so a lot of people gathered around Peter and uh, John were preaching the gospel and many people were being saved. Well, the, the, uh, let's look at, well, let's say the Jewish leaders then, these were the elite leaders, they were the ones in power. They saw this as a threat to their power. All the people were, were uh, being saved and, and going to become part of the church. And so they didn't want Christianity to continue to spread. And so in Acts 4, verse 17, it says, But to stop this thing from spreading, these are the Jewish leaders speaking, any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. And then they called them in again, that's Peter and John, and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And so the Jewish leaders had already put Peter and John in prison. They brought them out, and now they warned them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus, or bad things would happen. They would put them back into prison. And Satan was working through the government at that time to silence and suppress the witness of the church. And he continues to do this today. Now, what was the apostles' response to this government edict that you can no longer speak in the name of Jesus? You need to be quiet. You need to keep your faith to yourself. Don't try to proselytize anybody else just you know you can worship in your own little holy huddle but don't talk to anybody else about it 
What was the apostles' response? Well, verse 19, Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Basically, Peter and John were saying, we need, we're going to obey God, not you. Because God is telling us to do this thing. You're telling us not. Our allegiance is first and foremost to God. We're going to keep on witnessing for Jesus, speaking in his name. And so to obey God in this case was to disobey the government. And so when the principles or the commands of God and a government conflict, as a believer, we are obligated to obey the commands of God. Now, if the commands of government and the Bible do not conflict, well, we, of course, obey our government. And that is what the apostles chose to do. That is what all of us must choose to do today. And God blessed them, and the church continued to grow in that period of time. Now, today, my message is entitled, A Christian Citizen's Responsibility, Part 1. So that implies Part 2 is coming next Sunday. It wasn't very creative, but it's what I came up with, uh, part one and part two. So in nine days, the 2016 presidential election will be upon us, will be here. And there's really, I feel there's been a lot of confusion among Christians about how to vote. Now, why would this be? Well, I believe this is an extraordinarily important election. And so who do you think might be working overtime to confuse Christians? The devil, obviously, he probably does it every election, but it seems to be uh, particularly severe, this election. Well, some people say, well, Pastor Dan, why, why get so worked up about this election? Elections come, elections go, nothing ever changes. Uh, it doesn't matter who you vote for, it doesn't matter if you vote at all. Well, I believe that opinion is, is very wrong. Uh, if you have eyes to see, I think you'll agree with me that the downward spiral of our country has accelerated in the past eight years. Things are not getting better, things are getting worse, and a majority of Americans believe that. Not only the expansion of sin and wrong behavior being celebrated in our country, but an increased, I'd say, marginalization and discrimination against the church and against believers. It is increasing. Uh, it, more so as the years go by. And I and many other spirit-filled believers believe that this election represents a tipping point in our country's his history. Are we going to continue to be governed by biblical principles? The biblical principles that our country was founded upon, or will we be governed by non-biblical principles? By unelected judges, and by different laws. Now next Sunday I'm going to talk in more detail about the issues at stake in this election. But I'd encourage you to read uh, my post, there's just one up now, on the Life Church St. Louis blog uh, about a Christian's responsibility to vote. And I'd encourage you to to read that if you haven't already. So we're going to begin to talk about a Christian citizen's responsibility in this 2016 election. First of all, the Bible teaches us that religious freedom is a gift from God. 
Our country was founded by people fleeing persecution in Europe, and they came over to this country to be able to have freedom to worship God. And we've enjoyed religious freedom in this country for 240 years, and it has been used by God. Uh, Christianity has flourished in the United States of America, and this country has become the greatest missionary-sending country in the world. Uh, missionaries have been sent out to every continent, to just about every country in the world from the United States, and there are many, multiplied millions of believers around the world because of what God has done here. Now, 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, It's required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. And so religious freedom is a gift. It's a trust that God has given to us. And sometimes people just assume, you know, it's always going to be here. But no, it's something that we have to maintain, that we have to keep, that we have to prove faithful to that trust, that gift, the gift of religious freedom that God has given to us. And I believe religious freedom is at stake in this election. How should we vote? We should vote for policies that protect the church. We're going to look at a very important passage that I believe directly addresses how we as believers should vote. Uh, in the presidential election and in every election, this is how we should vote. And as we'll see, the biblical principles that are laid out in this passage, they may be different from what you've heard before, but I believe this is what the Bible teaches. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy. He says, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And so these verses are instructions how believers should pray you know, for everybody, but in particular, for those in authority in the government. Of course, back then, the government was not a democracy. Uh, there were kings. There were emperors. And they were to intercede to pray for those who were in authority. And so these verses show us what is God's will for government. They show us how we should vote. If we are to pray for something to happen, surely we are to vote for the same things to happen. They are what God's, God's will is. And what is God's will for government? Here these verses tell us that God's will is that believers may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. You know, some people say, oh, you know, we, why should we care for persecuted? The church thrives under persecution. Maybe we should pray we'll be persecuted. That's not what God's word says. You never pray to be persecuted. Okay, that's... It's not like the Muslims. We, we don't want to die. You know, we want to live. We want to spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray that we might live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And so government leaders, we are to pray and vote that they would promote policies that protect the church and believers. That should guide who we vote for. You notice here that nothing is said here about praying for leaders that have certain moral qualifications. Many of these things are in the Bible are talking about church leaders. A church leader is quite different than a government leader. 
the impact of the policies of the government on the church is what is important. And that should guide how we are to vote. Now at the time of Paul's writing this letter, the emperor was Nero. You heard about Nero? I mean, he makes... <laughs> Our leaders today that we, you know, we think are so bad, he, it looks like it's a Sunday school picnic. I mean, Nero was a perverted, sadistic murder. I mean, we can't even talk about the things that he did in his reign. He persecuted Christians. He, he lighted them as torches for his orgies, and they were burning and screaming at, the, at his things. He killed them by wild beasts. He crucified them, and it list goes on and on. Terrible persecution under Nero's reign. But Paul's instruction to Timothy had nothing to do with Nero's abominable moral character. It had to do with the effect of his policies on the church. They were to pray. Now, persecution still arose, and many Christians, including Peter, were killed under the persecution of Nero. But they were to pray that ultimately, ultimately, Nero committed suicide a few years later, and the persecution lessened. And so the instruction that Paul gave Timothy had to do with uh, praying for the effect of government's policies on the church. We are to vote for policies that protect the church. Secondly, vote for policies that allow evangelism. The passage continues in verse 3 and 4. This is good, what we are just told to pray for. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And so this passage then goes on to give us the reason why God wills for believers to live peaceful and quiet lives. The end result that God wants to see is more people saved, more people added to his kingdom, more people coming to a knowledge of the truth. And so we must vote in a way that, that evangelism, the evangelism efforts of the church are not hindered. We are to vote in a way that Christians are not persecuted by are for telling others about Jesus Christ. And so we must use our gift of voting to advance the cause of Christ in the world. Well, let's ask the question, well, how do you determine what policies a candidate is going to promote? You know, how do you look at their policies? Like I said, we're not going to look at specific policies today. That comes next Sunday. But how do we look at policies and determine uh, well, look at candidates and determine what policies are they going to promote so that we can evaluate whether they're going to protect the church and allow evangelism. Well, the answer, the simple answer, is to look at the party platforms. The party platform is written by representatives of the party. They consult with the candidates for office, and the platforms provide guidelines for the policies of the candidates of the party. And history has proven that candidates implement and vote for a high percentage of their party's platforms. And so platforms inform us in advance both of policies that we'll be voting for if we pick that particular candidate and also policies we might want to vote against if we choose another candidate. Christians who have studied the major party platforms for 2016 say that one of the platforms is the most consistent with biblical principles that has ever been written by any major party. They also say that the other platform is more opposed to Christian principles of any platform that has ever been written. And so there becomes an increasing 
polarization between the major parties, aligned with biblical principles and aligned against. So I'd like us to watch a short video which contrasts the platforms of the two major parties. And as you watch, you be the judge of which platform is most consistent with biblical principles. So next week we're going to be looking in more detail about some of the policies, important policies for Christians to base their voting upon. Religious freedom is a gift from God, and we as believers are responsible to vote. Romans 13 verse 1 says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. And so our government, the United States of America, says that, says that voting is both a right and a responsibility of every U.S. citizen. Romans 13 verse 7 says, Give to everyone what you owe them. This is in the same passage about, about our relationship with the government. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And so... The government says our responsibility is to vote. As believers, we are to vote. There's really no circumstance in which a Christian should not exercise their right to vote. Uh, to not vote is really disobedience to the Word of God. How are we to vote? We're to vote for the best candidate. Jeremiah 29 verse 7 says, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now this verse uh, was written by the prophet Jeremiah to the people who had been exiled to Babylon uh, for their sin. And he was saying, you're in a pagan country now, but you are to seek the peace and prosperity of this country, because if it prospers, you prosper. And so who is the best candidate? Obviously, they didn't have a choice to vote. We have the gift from God of the ability to influence what our government is like. We have the gift that God has given to us of voting. Who is the best candidate? It's the one who will best carry out the policies that we've talked about, protecting the church and allowing evangelism. The candidate that will best, according to biblical principles, cause our country, both our church and our country, to prosper. Because when the country prospers, the people of God will prosper as well. And so, how do you choose the best candidate? Some of this is obvious, but it just seems a lot of people are confused. It's a process of comparison. Uh, you compare the candidates. You pray and you compare the candidates that you have to determine which one is the best candidate. Which one do you feel God wants to see elected? Which one will carry out the policies that we've been talking about. Now, by definition, every candidate that's ever run for office is a sinful, flawed candidate with some kind of skeletons in their closet because there are no perfect candidates. Jesus is not on the ballot. Some candidates are more flawed than others. The only time that you should vote for a candidate based on character would be if their policies were equivalent with respect to believers. Say that again. The only time you should vote for a candidate based on character would be if their policies were equivalent 
with regard to believers. That's not been the case in decades. So as believers, we must vote based on policy. What does your vote mean? Let's look back at um, the first phrase in Romans 13, 7. It says, give to everyone what you owe them. When you vote, you are voting for the best candidate to put biblically-based policies into effect. You are giving what the Bible says you owe them. You are giving them your vote because you believe their policies will best enhance the mission of the church, best bring prosperity to the country. You are not saying when you vote for someone that you agree with everything they've ever said. You are not saying when you vote for someone that you agree with everything they've ever done. When you vote for someone, you are not saying that you agree with every policy position they've ever held in the past or even every policy position they hold right now. You are simply saying you've compared candidates and you believe in your comparison that this one is the best candidate based on biblical principles. That's all you're saying when you vote for someone. Matthew 22:39. Jesus said, the first commandment is obviously love God with everything you have. The second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so your vote means that you care enough about the church you care enough about fellow believers, you care enough about your country that you're voting for the candidate that you believe will cause all of those to prosper. In some cases, well, probably in every case, not only are you voting for, for the policies of the best candidate, you are voting against the policies of the worst candidate. If there's a best candidate, there's a worst candidate. Is that not right? You're voting against the policies of the worst candidate. Uh, and so as a Christian citizen, each of us is responsible to vote. Now, in this election, some Christians have taken uh, personal offense at what certain candidates have said or done in the past. And we do not vote based on taking personal offense at what someone has said. We are to vote based on what's best for the church, what's best for the country as a whole. Now, some people reason that God will hold them liable for all the past misdeeds of a candidate if they vote for them. They say they cannot vote for evil. Again, uh, that argument doesn't make any sense. Voting is what we said, it's all about comparison. You can call it for voting for the greatest good or you can call it voting for the least evil. It's all the same thing. God will not hold you accountable for a candidate's past sins or even sins they commit in the future. He'll hold you accountable for not voting or for voting for a candidate who you know is going to promote ungodly policies. We choose, for the, we choose the best candidate to vote for. That's what we're responsible for. Finally, we vote for the best candidate who can win. Uh, Psalm 82 verse 4 says, Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Now next Sunday, as I said, we're going to look at policies, uh, specific policies that defend the most weak and needy. And in order to follow this command here to rescue the weak and needy, we must not only vote for the best candidate, we must vote for the best candidate who can win. Now some Christians, not understanding what their vote means, think it's, morally righteous to look at the field of every possible candidate 
and vote for the candidate that has the best Christian character and policies, even though that candidate has absolutely no chance to win. Third-party candidates in the 2016 election have zero chance of winning. If you disagree, you can discuss with me afterwards, but they have zero chance of winning. And a vote for a third-party candidate is wasting your vote, the vote that has been given you by God to influence the direction of this country. It's equivalent to not voting, and that is disobedience to God's word. Now, some say they're sending a message that they don't like the other candidate, so I'm going to vote for a candidate who can't win. Well, you are sending a message you're sending a message that you don't care about the weak and needy. You don't care about the direction of the country. You don't care about how this election is going to influence the future of the church. That's not a message that we want to send. In fact, voting third party is actually helping the worst candidate. Proverbs 24 says, If you falter in a time of trouble, how small is your strength? Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about it. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he, he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay everyone according to what they have done? Now, voting for a candidate who cannot win means that the worst candidate needs one less vote to win. That's simple mathematics. In attempting to vote only for this righteous candidate who cannot win, you have inadvertently brought the most evil, the worst candidate, one step closer to winning. Now these verses in Proverbs tell us that we are responsible to do whatever it takes to rescue those being led away to death. And yes, we will be talking about abortion next Sunday. But if there's a clear choice between candidates' policies affecting the lives of innocent people, we must use the gift that God has given us of voting for the candidate who can make a difference. God knows the motives, as these verses say, of everybody's heart. What is your motive in voting? These should be our motives, the things that God's word tells us. We must vote according to the word of God. Proverbs 21, verse 2 says, A person may think their own ways are right, but the Lord weighs the heart. You know, some people say you must vote your conscience. My conscience doesn't allow me to vote this way or that way. That's not in the Bible anywhere. We are to be guided by the Holy Spirit and by God's word. People's conscience mislead them all the time. The Bible speaks of people's conscience being seared. They get to a point they cannot even tell the difference between right and wrong. Or people's conscience will tell them to do wrong things. That doesn't make it right because their conscience told them to do it. People's conscience tell them to not do right things, which the Bible tells us to do. This proverb is basically saying, whether you think you are doing right or wrong, if your conscience is telling you right or wrong, you are not the judge. It is the Lord who weighs the heart. It is God's word who ultimately gives us the standard for what is right and wrong. So how can we know how to vote? By knowing God's word, by knowing what God's word says. We've looked at it this morning. By listening to those that God has put into our lives to instruct us in God's word and by listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit. That is how we can know how to vote. 
And so our conclusion this morning is that our choice in this election to determine uh, our choice, your choice in this election is to determine the best candidate who can win. And so that narrows down your choice to two candidates. One of those two candidates is going to win the election. Now in your bulletin, there's a voter's guide. Like you can pull it out. And that has lists the policies of the major candidates for the office of president on one side. And on the back, it lists the policies of the candidates for Missouri Senate, governor, and attorney general. And so next week, we're going to talk about some of those. We certainly don't have time to talk about all of those policies there, and actually some that are not on these, these lists. We're going to talk about some of those uh, next Sunday, which policies align themselves with biblical principles. I want to say in conclusion that I'm under no illusion that electing God's will for president is going to lead automatically to revival in this country. You know, whoever we elect is not going to necessarily believe, bring revival. But I sincerely believe that if we elect God's will for president, the church and the country will benefit. On the other hand, if we don't elect God's will for president, the situation becomes very dire for the church in our country. And we're going to talk about that next week. When you vote for God's choice for president, the best candidate who can win, you're going to be blessed. Even if that candidate doesn't win. When we do the right thing, we will be blessed. On the other hand, when you don't vote for God's choice, you're not going to be blessed no matter who wins. In fact, if you're not blessed, basically that means you're under God's judgment unless you repent. So we are living in a pivotal time of history in our country and in our world. The stakes are very high for the church, for our country, and for our children. And so I'd encourage each one of us to pray every day until the election. It's only nine days away. Pray, first of all, that God will clearly lead you how to vote, that you'll have a conviction from the Holy Spirit the right way to vote. If you've already voted, well, you've already voted. You can always repent. Okay, so, or you can praise God, you know. It's like, I didn't know, God, I'm sorry. So those are your two options. It's not the end of the world. We all sin in different ways. Lightning won't strike. Okay, so... Don't be afraid. Just repent if you voted wrong. So pray every day that God will clearly lead you how to vote. Secondly, pray that God will lead others across the country, that he will have his way in the election, both Christians and non-elections, I mean, not, and non-believers, uh, to vote according to his will. And finally, pray that God will bring unity and bring revival to the church as we seek to follow him, that God will bring revival not only to the church, but to our country, which is what we need most of all. Important thing is for people to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You have a relationship with Jesus by admitting that you've done wrong, putting your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and committing to follow him and his word in every aspect of your life. So in closing, I'd like to ask us to bow our heads. We're going to pray. And if you're not sure that you're a believer this morning, you'd like to recommit your life to him, I'd encourage you to pray along with me. 
Say something like this, Father, today, I admit that I've, I've sinned, I've done wrong things. And I repent, I turn away from those things. I believe that Jesus died on the cross that my sins might be forgiven. Please forgive me, come into my life. I commit myself to following you as my Savior and Lord. I want to obey everything that you tell me to do in every aspect of my life. For those of us who are believers, let's pray as well. Father, today we thank you for the gift of religious freedom that you've given us and the church in this country. Forgive us when we've taken this gift lightly and just assuming it's always going to be here, assuming things will never change. God, we pray that our government, the government we elect in nine days, would protect the church, that it would allow our witness to continue and even expand, that evangelism would, would grow under the new government. God, we pray that you take away confusion from anyone who hears this message, whether live here in person or later on the internet, God. Give them clarity of mind to vote according to your will in this election. I pray that each believer, each Christian should vote, would vote for the best candidate who can win. We pray that the candidates would implement policies that would help believers live peaceful and quiet lives serving you without persecution, without discrimination, without laws keeping us quiet. We pray that you would intervene in this election, that you would lead people to vote for your will. We ask that you bring unity to your church and revival to America through your spirit and through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.